This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 21st, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is John Wagenveld. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. passage that God has us in in this morning is Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord standing upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is John or Juan Wagenveld, and I am so uh, excited to be here this morning. Thank you for the warm Washington welcome that some of you, and especially in the first service, have already extended to me. Thank you for the trust of this leadership and of Pastor Sam. Uh, entrusting me with the pulpit and to be able to share the Word of God with you, it's a privilege and a responsibility for me, and I appreciate it. I uh, am connected through this, to this church uh, through the Spears, Doug and Mary Lynn. Mary Lynn, in particular, is on the board of directors of the Multiplication Network Ministries. It's a mouthful, but just think of the candy, M&M. The M&M's, you know, some like the chocolate one only and some like the peanut kind. But whichever one you see, when you see that candy at the stores and places, just say a prayer for that organization called M&M and we will appreciate that. And the Lord does hear the prayers of his people. Multiplication Network is working in about 42 nations uh, around the world and we have about 6,000 church planters, couples who are going out with the truth of the gospel to start communities and villages and towns and cities, apartment buildings and in rural areas and up in the mountains of Peru, in, in the highlands, in, uh, in, in Tanzania and different places, just preaching the gospel, bringing people to faith, but also being salt and light in their communities as the, as the gospel calls us to do. I want to congratulate this church I have to tell you two things that you might be taking for granted. One, you live in a beautiful area of the world. I have been in over 100 countries, and I am telling you, when I drove again this time from SeaTac Airport to, to this area, usually a freeway or a highway takes you through a jungle of concrete, but 
I saw trees green and, and red and yellow, the changing colors. And then later when I turned into going towards Everett, I turned and all of a sudden I saw mountains and, and snow-capped mountains. And I'm going like, wow! And I've experienced this before, but it just, it's like, praise be to God for His beautiful creation. I'm here to tell you, if nothing else, don't take it for granted. It is a beautiful place of the world that you live in. I'm telling you, not just of the U.S., of the world. This is an amazing place. The second thing is that I'm already getting the contagion in only my first visit to you. I participated in the first service, and the music that you guys enjoy, I get to preach in, in many, many churches around the world. I thank the Lord for that. And everyone has their strengths and their weaknesses, but I'm telling you, don't take this music for granted. You could have a church of 10,000. I would put this music group, if their hearts are honest and sincere before the Lord as worship leaders, the technical aspects, the spirituality, everything, you know, as far as I can tell, at least from my first impression, you need to thank the Lord for these musicians. So thank you, musicians, for providing us a time to worship God in spirit and in truth. May the Lord use you as you lead people that in your own hearts you might continue to be transformed by the gospel as you lead us into the transformation that happens through worship. So thank you. Pastor Sam and I had a chance with some other leaders of this congregation to have dinner at the Spears home on, on Friday. And I can tell that we already have a kindred spirit in terms of a phrase that he even uses uh, today. He said in 30 seconds what took me 45 minutes to say, but basically that we're not just saved from the world, but that then we're transformed and sent back into it. And I think that's powerful. And I love the name of your church, Restoration Church. I told the first group uh, this morning, if you had to reduce the gospel to one word, what, what word would you choose? Have you ever thought of that? And I always jostled back between, well, it'd have to be the word Jesus. What else? Jesus. But then I say, yeah, but that's the name of the, of the creator and the transformer and the, and, the, and the savior and the Lord. But maybe the word should be grace because it's such a powerful concept, the grace of God. Maybe, and, and so I go through different words, but one that really appeals to me that would be up there, it's certainly in a top 10 list, is the word restoration. And hopefully during the message of this morning, you will see why. Why don't we come to the Lord and ask Him to open up our hearts and minds as we open up the Word. In some traditions, they call this the prayer of illumination. It's just a fancy liturgical term that means illumine. Holy Spirit, join us here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a charismatic event that is about to take place, which is the preaching of the Word. And we participate with all the human agency, but there's something beyond the human agency that happens in that charismatic event. And it has a power of its own that is of none of us, but of God inasmuch as we have the capacity to take in what He wants to speak in and through each one of us. So that prayer of illumination is saying, Lord, illumine our hearts, illumine the Word, illumine the preaching of the Word, the Word written and the Word proclaimed, so that it might take root in our hearts where it really matters to bring transformation and that something beautiful might grow therein. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You have convened us here this morning We've been the church scattered is where we spend most of our time and where you want us to spend most of our time as salt and light, but now we have the privilege to be the church gathered. 
as we come together in worship, to bring our offerings, to partake in the sacrament, to hear your word, we now ask you that you might illuminate us, open our minds, open our hearts to that which you want to speak to us. Speak to us with clarity, speak to us with conviction, speak to us in a way that will touch our hearts. For we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. I grew up as the son of a missionary uh, when I was one. My parents went to Costa Rica to learn Spanish. My brother Mike was born there, and then we went to the southern part of Argentina, to the Patagonia. Some people think of the Patagonia as the place where the devil lost his poncho. And it's just a way of saying it's far away, and some would consider it biblically the ends of the earth. But if you hear a little accent in my English, some people think I'm from Canada or from the other side of the nation, and it's just that I grew up speaking Spanish and grew up in the country of Argentina. Later, my wife and I uh, were able to live in Puerto Rico also for after the 13 years that I was in Argentina, came back, studied here, did a master's, eventually a doctorate, but lived seven years planting a church in Puerto Rico in the Caribbean, and three of our four children are born in Puerto Rico. And so... The Lord, I never wanted to be a pastor, and kind of like Pastor Sam, who said he thought he'd always be a high school teacher, I wanted to be involved in community development. And indirectly, I am, but the Lord called me and has me, whether I like it or not, has me in the whole area of forming new communities of faith and training those people that go out. We have two key premises in what we, in what we do, and one is a community is better off when it has a body of believers and followers of Jesus that empowered by the Spirit are being salt and light. A community is better off when it has such a church than if it didn't have that church. And to many people's surprise, there are tens of thousands of villages and towns and cities that don't have an evangelical church of any kind. Not Baptist, not Pentecostal, not Presbyterian, not Nazarene, not Christian Missionary Alliance. None! That's not right! We're trying to change that in obedience to the Great Commission. The second premise is, if it's better that that community have a church, it's also better that the couple that says, here am I, send me, send us, it's better that that couple have accompaniment and equipping and training than not. And that's what we're about. We're trying to train those 6,000 church planners around the world so that they'll go and establish these points of salt and light, these outposts of the kingdom of God, so that they can declare Jesus is Lord and bring people to repentance and faith in Christ and through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, bring about transformation and restoration to those communities. Today, we're studying a passage out of Isaiah 6. And I'd like to, before uh, we get into the verse-by-verse -verse, uh, exposition of this passage, give you just a little bit of historical and literary context. The historical part is you need to understand that Isaiah, uh, Isaiah means salvation. The name itself tells us already a little bit about what this is about. Yahweh brings salvation. God, the God of Isaiah, brings salvation. And the king has just died. It's a moment of crisis. It's a moment of uncertainty. And the Assyrian armies, we're talking about 739, 740 before Christ, the armies of the Assyrians are advancing on the nation of Israel. So the king has died and the enemy armies are advancing. This is the critical period in which we have the text that is written uh, for the original hearers. In terms of the literary context, you need to understand that the first 
uh, 12 chapters of Isaiah form what is called a triptych. A triptych is uh, just a fancy artistic word to mean like a three-paneled photograph. It's like a picture or an artist piece or like what you would put on a piano or on, the, on, on your fireplace, you know, where you have the son on one side, the daughter on the other, and then the whole family in the middle panel. Well, Isaiah 6 sits in the middle panel of these 12 chapters of Isaiah 1 to 12, which are mostly about doom and gloom, about woe. He has to speak, Isaiah has to go speak on behalf of God to power, and it's not a good positive message. It's not a warm, fuzzy message. But in the middle, we have Isaiah 6, which is the prophet's call. And this is an important moment. And for those of you who like to keep your Bibles open, I encourage that because we'll go verse by verse, one through, verse 1 through 8. And uh, I'll just give you the outline for those of you who like to take notes. It's a very simple out, outline. We're going to see how Isaiah looked up and there was a confrontation with God, an encounter with God. Secondly, he looked in and he realized who he was in relation to his creator and caller. And third, once the transformation takes place, he has to look out. So look up, look in, and look out. Shall we start? Verse 1. I, I give you a, an introduction here in this, in this part by sharing this uh, story of a light, of a of a, of a military vessel that was cruising through the high seas on a dark and stormy night. And when the captain of a sh the ship looks in the distance, he sees an intermittent flashing light. And the captain decides to send out a warning, a message, so as to avoid a collision in the high seas. So he sends out with those lights, you know, they communicate through the flashing of the lights. He says, change your direction 10 degrees north. But the response comes, to his surprise, change your direction 10 degrees south. A little bit bothered, the captain says, I'm a high-ranking officer in the Navy. Change your course 10 degrees north. The response comes after just a slight delay. Sir, please change your direction 10 degrees south. Now angrily, the captain says, warning, I'm in a fully armed military ship. Change your direction 10 degrees north. And now the final response comes. Change your course 10 degrees south. I'm in a lighthouse. <laughs> Sometimes the failure to change, whether it's a small adjustment in our course or a big transformation and a 180 that we need to do in our lives can lead to disastrous consequences. Isaiah is about to have a confrontation that is of this nature. In the middle of crisis, in the middle of decision-making, in the middle of a situation where armies are advancing and the king has just died, he needs to make some decisions. And I ask you to listen with an open heart to what the Lord might say to you. I don't know you personally, but the Lord knows you intimately. He has you in this place. Some of you come with great joy and everything's going right for you and life is exciting. Some of you come with incredible brokenness and sadness in your heart. And some of you just come with questions, maybe ambivalence, and even doubt. The good thing is that God has us here, and there's room for you. And in the middle of the, whatever circumstance you're in, whatever decisions you need to make, adjustments or change of course, God can speak to you here today. 
Verse 1 says, In the year King Uzziah died. I'm going to ask our friends to put up verse 1. And there you see it. In the year that King Uzziah died, right away we are placed in the situation. God is a God of history who comes in the middle of a context and in the middle of a situation. He's the God of history and the God of life. And through it, He works His glory to His uh, To his glory, he works out his purposes. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, people would have right away heard this and they knew what had happened with him. King Uzziah was a good king. For most part, in the list of of King Uzziah, he had a good reputation. The incredible thing is he started reigning at age 16. I have four kids. Three of them already have gone past the 16 age landmark. I would have not given any kingdom to any of them. I don't know about you, but I would not give the reins of a kingdom to a 16-year-old. I just wouldn't. But God, in his good pleasure, gives King Uzziah that uh, task, and he does a good job. He must have had counselors, and he did well. He's described as a good king, with one exception. He did not finish well. If you read in the book of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles 26, you'll see the detailed story of King Uzziah. And he did not finish well because he disobeyed the word of God. At the end, he became proud. He became haughty. Something happened where he thought he could go above the law and that the rules no longer applied to him. This is one of the things that happens sometimes in leaders who are put on high pedestals. And then later we learn of how they fall or how we fall because of something that we think we're above. God's law and God's rule. What happened is he got impatient, and even though the priest told him, don't, don't do this, what you're about to do, don't do it, he left the throne room, which is his area of power, and he went to an area that God had as a separate place, which is the temple, the two T's for teaching purposes, the throne of the political power and the temple of the religious ritual. They were separate. God had him as separate. Here was the king, and here were the priests. He went and did the priestly duty that he was not supposed to do, and he went and he lit the incense because he got impatient. And because he did that, it says in, in the Scriptures that God commanded leprosy to come upon him, and that's how he died. This is important for what's about to come. So let's look at the next part of the verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So we have the situation in the year that King Uzziah died. That's the context. And then we have the first action. Isaiah sees the Lord. This is the part of he looks up. He looks up and he has a confrontation with God. He sees the creator of the heavens and the earth, his maker and the one that's going to be calling him. And him, they have an encounter. I saw the Lord. People ask, how is it possible that he sees God? It's not possible for someone to survive seeing God face to face, you know? And we hear that about Moses. How can it be? In the case of Moses, it says, well, when he went by, he just saw his back, right? And, and he was in the whisper. And in the case of Isaiah, he sees the Lord, but you don't have any description of the Lord except that everything that is around him. Calvin, in in his commentaries, John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, he says, people can see God only in as much as their capacity allows them to do so. And so he sees him, and then we have the description. And the description goes something like that. He is where? Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
Some will later make in that lifted up a reference to Christ lifted up on the cross. But he sees the Lord sitting high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, do you see what happened? I just told you something about Uzziah, the King Uzziah, that he went from one place to the other and died because he crossed that boundary that God had placed. But when we're talking about God, God is sitting on the throne, the place of political power, and he's also, his train and his robe fills the temple. So the throne and the temple, the place of religious ritual and the place of political power, all of it belongs to him. So the original hearers would have immediately recognized, we know our king died because he crossed. Man has limits and boundaries. God is the governor of all. So this is what we can see here. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Then it says, then it says in verse 2 that there are how many, uh, that there are seraphim. How many wings do these seraphim have? Six wings. We'll look at this in a moment. This, this, part, this verse is special to me because of my four kids, my fourth one, three were born in Puerto Rico. The youngest was born in Crown Point, Indiana, and her name is Serafina. Serafina. And some people say, oh, is it because of a cat? I didn't even know there was a cat, but I guess there's some movie where the cat is named Serafina, some cartoon that a lot of kids know about. I didn't know about that. But Serafina comes from the word seraphim here, which means ardent one or burning one. These angels can fly swift as fire. And so you think of flames of fire. That's what seraphim means in the, in the original word. And so these seraphim, these ardent ones, these that fly uh, like fire, have six wings. And this is what they des- the scripture describes about it. With two wings, they cover their faces. The early church fathers saw in this, as the modern scholars do, that that is a way of hiding their face from the radiance of God's glory. So right away in this encounter with God, we have the presence, the glory. Glory is rooted in the weightiness of God, the Almighty, the creator of the stars, the creator of the firmament, the maker of heaven and earth, and your creator, your maker. This is who we're talking about, his glory. If we beheld his face, we would be dust. And so this is the image that we have here of the seraphim covering their faces so as to not be destroyed by God's radiance. Secondly, they have two wings that it says they cover their... Their what? Yeah, their body. But really it should say their feet. Thank you. Their feet. Now here, some people say covering the feet is is a teaching of covering themselves to be humble before the Lord. In Middle Eastern cultures where this is situated, to show someone your feet, especially the bottom of your feet like I'm doing now, would be a terrible insult. In Middle Eastern cultures, you don't fold your, you don't uh, cross your legs like this showing the bottom of your feet to others because that, that is disrespectful to your guests. It's disrespectful to the person you're talking to. So you have to keep your feet down. If you ever visit there, remember this rule because it's real. And, and you might remember that there was an American president that was in a, in a uh, press conference and someone from an Arabic culture who knows these rules, in the American culture it just meant like somebody was trying to hurl something at him, but the insult was that the, pre- the journalist took his shoe off and threw his shoe at the president. And the idea was an insult. It's not so much the shoe's going to hurt you. It's I'm throwing 
this disgusting thing that touches the ground to you. It's an insult. So here, the seraphim are covering their feet in this Mediterranean uh, um, uh, story. Others say, no, it's not just that. It's also a, a euphemism, a polite way of saying they covered there, and, and there our, our kid friend that helped me out here is saying the truth, covering his naked body. So his answer was correct, and that's what they say, so as to cover the nudity from God. And the last two wings are for them to do their jobs as emissaries of the king to be able to fly. Okay. What are these angels and these seraphim doing? They're calling out to one another. And this is a very fun part of, of this scripture, verse 3. They're calling out to one another. This calling out to one another is what we would call in liturgical language an antiphonal reading. Do you know those uh, customs in some churches where the pastor might read verse 1 and then you would read verse 2? He would read verse 3, you would read verse 4, and so forth. That's an antiphonal reading, antiphonal, phonol, which comes from phonetics or from phono, which means to hear and to speak, and it's the audible part of, of speech. And then anti, which is one, then the other, one, then the other, antiphonal, antiphonal reading. And that's what you have here. They're calling out to one another this phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of of his glory. Now, you can imagine, to, to imagine what this is like, it really worked in the first service, so you guys have, can't be shown up by the first group. You have to help me out here, okay? The first group is going to be this side over here, and the second group is over here. Don't worry, this is very easy. This side is going to help me out by very softly starting, we're going to do it three times. You will just say, you can read it off the screen, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I want you to say it the first time, softly. The second time, middle voice. And the third time, really loud. Like you mean it. This side, once they're done with the soft part of the first one where they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, I want you to respond, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then they'll say it the second time, and you the second time, then the third time, and the third time. The third time, again, in your case, really loudly. This will just give us a little idea of what it sounded like in the throne room of God, what it describes here. The angels are calling out to one another, worshiping God with this antiphonal reading. So are we ready for that? So with this side, we'll start and join me softly first. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for helping me out. This just gives you a little idea of what it was like when the angels are calling to one another in worship to the Lord Most High. Now let's analyze what it is that they're saying. This is not Mickey Mouse. This is the Word of God. It says, holy, holy, holy. And this is what happens. In the Hebrew language, we don't have a word that then can be with a comparative and a superlative. And what I have to be careful because we have some in former English teachers here, and I'm sure there's others of you. There was a principal of a Christian school sitting here, so I have to be careful what I say. But you can correct me after the break uh, uh, during the coffee time if you want. 
But what I've been told is that if you say in English fast, the comparative is faster, and the superlative is fastest. Fast, faster, the fastest. Or great, greater, and the greatest. That's the superlative. In Hebrew, they don't have comparative and superlative. So the way that they solve that technically in the language is by repetition and redundancy, and they say things three times. So instead of saying fast, faster, fastest, they would say fast, fast, fast. And so that's why here we have holy, holy, holy. It's a reference to maybe the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the church fathers and modern commentators tell us that this is the way that's of saying there is no other God like our God. He is singularly holy. And what's interesting is that in the Scripture, even though wisdom is important and love is super important, I mean, Paul says that love is like the most important gift or charis, uh, the most important charism that we can have, love, to love one another. We shall be known by loving. It doesn't say anywhere love, love, love. But in Scripture, we do find holy, holy, holy. I'd like to tell you what Louis Burkhoff the great theologian that wrote the systematic theology book that many seminaries around the world use, he says, it does not seem proper to speak of one attribute of God as being more central and fundamental than another. But if this were permissible, the scriptural emphasis on the holiness of God would seem to justify its selection. Amazing. Holy, holy, holy. And then, not only is God set apart, that's what holiness means, right? To be set apart. We have understood this in the church, but we've only taught one side of the coin, not the two sides. This is I'm something I'm convinced of. We've taught very well, be ye separate from. Be separate from this, be separate from that, be separate from that other thing. We teach that part. But the second part of the coin is not only to be separate from, we're supposed to be separate for. If we want to mobilize today's generation into mission, we need to realize not just saying, okay, the Ten Commandments tell us this, yes, be separate from this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but what are we called into? What are we separate for? That's why I like what Pastor Sam says. It's not just being saved from the world, but being saved to go back and transform the world. But then it says something very important, and here I might step on a few toes. And I apologize if I hurt anyone's feelings, but I want to speak forth what the Word says. It says, the whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. Why is this almost politically incorrect today? Because every country wants to say, God bless us. See, even the Israelites, even the, the nation of Israel... From the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, where we have the Great Commission of the Old Testament, we all know the Great Commission in Matthew 28 in the New Testament, go and make disciples of all nations, etc. But we don't emphasize sometimes the covenant already started in Genesis 12 when God tells Abraham, leave the land of Ur, leave the land of your parents, and go to the land that I will show you. No map, no extra finances or anything, just go to the land I will show you. And then you will be blessed. And then, and through you, you will be a blessing to the nations. We like the first part. We don't like the second part. The first part, Israel was hearing, we're going to be blessed. But they often in the Old Testament forgot about that through you will be blessing to the nations. This Isaiah is in the Old Testament. 
And Isaiah is already 700 years before Christ speaking these things. And, he's, and here we have in Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his glory. While the Israelite nation is trying to hoard this for, for itself, it's having to be reminded that the glory is not just for Israel, but that through Israel, it's going to be a blessing to the nation. And one of the things that happens in American evangelicalism, and anything that you don't agree or that I misspeak, please go see Pastor Sam afterwards and he'll correct it. <laughs> and, but it's the, this is called, there's the particularity of the gospel and where he selected some to go and do his work in the Jesus way, just as Jesus was selected as the new Israel to do something in the world. But there is also the universality of the gospel. That's what's happening here. The universality of the gospel. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. Not just Israel. Not just America. Every country, every nation will have to bend the knee before Jesus as Christ, as Lord, as Savior. Amen? The whole earth is full. Let's remember that. And some, I know it's not politically sometimes correct to say, God bless Mexico, because we just want to say, God bless America, right? Every political speech is, God bless America. What, what, about, what about the Mexicans? What about the Peruvians? What about the Afghans? What about the uh, uh, Asians? Or what about the Chinese? God has intent for every nation. Now, here's something that's happened. The Father has all the power, the glory, and the holiness. And he gives that to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does his work. And then he says, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers the church. And the church is supposed to go and love and be salt and light to the community. But what happens? It, just like Israel did, we, the modern church, want to hoard it and enjoy it here and not do the work in the community. So the, the flow of the power, the holiness, and the authority, and the godliness is stuck. From the Father, it goes to the Son. And from the Son, it goes to the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers the church. And there's the community. But we stay here. I know that doesn't happen in Washington State, but in other places it happens. <laughs> Let's continue with the next verse. Then in verse 4, it says, The doorposts and the thresholds shook. Calvin says this in his commentaries. If inanimate and dumb creatures are moved, what should we do who feel, smell, taste, and understand? And the whole area is filled with smoke. This is what theologians call a theophany a presence or a revelation of God where this has happened, it usually is symbolized in the Hebrew worldview with the place filling up with smoke. God is making his presence known. So let's summarize this first part. Isaiah looked up. He saw the Lord. He knows his context. The king has died. The Assyrians are advancing. And he has this incredible confrontation with the holiness and the glory of God. And now... The second part, he looks in. When he looks in, the next verse will tell us what happened. Look at his appropriate response. Woe is me! In some versions, I am ruined. I am undone. I am silent. In modern language, we'd say, I'm dead meat. Woe is me in the ESV. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
And then he gives the reason for his lostness and his uncleanness. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Wow. He had looked up. He saw the glory, glorious manifestation of God, His power and His sanctity, His holiness. But now He looks in, and the obvious response, as it should be with us today, is that when we meet up with God, we should realize the unworthiness of our connectivity to a holy God. The good news is that it doesn't have to end there. It leads, the unworthiness leads to confession. So if you were doing an outline, you would go looking up confrontation with God, an encounter with God. Looking in, confession and cleansing. The confession is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is the prophet, the prophet speaking. The prophet is the one that keeps the ritual religion of the people going and who upholds the moral law. And he himself is saying, I'm a more unworthy. This is what he says. Because he has seen the Lord. Thankfully, there's more. Verse 6. Verse 6 gives us that after the confession comes an incredible prototype of the gospel. And there, the seraphs, one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Let's look at this for a moment. By the way, this is one of the very few churches in the world that has allowed me to come up with a cup of coffee. Thank you. So cool. They told me I could preach in clean jeans if I wanted. I go, praise the Lord. Down to earth, real life, serving a real God. Praise God. I like that. The seraph flies to Isaiah with a live coal taken from the altar. There's two altars, you know, the altar of incense, which is a sweet-smelling offering unto the Lord. And then Israel also had an altar of sacrifice where a lamb without blemish would be sacrificed in like an escape, uh, uh, what do we call that, an, an escape, escape, a scapegoat, the scapegoat, which, you know, they would take out of the camp. The, the goat would, the sins would put, up, put on it and they could kill a lamb and sacrifice it, but they could also put a symbolic goat and take it out. That's why we call it a scapegoat. It would take the sins out of the community. Because individual sin at long haul always affects community. The seraph flies, and Ray Stedman says this, God hears, even with all the described noise of this passage, the cry of a guilty man. And a seraph must stop his worship, leave his place, and minister to that needy heart. Amazing. The seraph is an emissary of God and is now using those two wings as an ambassador of grace. In the NIV notes of the study Bible, it says the coals of fire were taken inside the most holy place on the Day of Atonement in, in Leviticus. And so this coal is coming to touch Isaiah's lips. And I want us to just pause for a moment. Why does the coal touch his lips? And there are two reasons at least for this. One reason is that God can meet you and me at the point of confession. 
Whatever we confess, God can use that very weakness or that very thing that has been as, uh, uh, an impediment to our relationship. He can transform it and then use it to make it a blessing. That's why we call it restoration. It's a restoration to the right relationship. Let me be a little bit risky here. Sex is a great thing. It's a gift of God. But when it goes outside of the boundaries that God has for it, it becomes a destructive thing and it breaks relationships. Wine, the fruit of a grape, whatever your view might be on that, but just poetically accept this for, from me for a moment. I'm taking an airplane this afternoon, and so if something I don't like, you just talk to Pastor Sam and you know that I'm gone. <laughs> but the, the fruit of the vine can provide a nice glass of wine with a nice Italian meal but it can also destroy a marriage and it can destroy. So things that are meant for good, we take them and we abuse them and we use them in ways that destroy relationship, destroy self, or destroy relationship with God. It's all about relationships in the gospel. Relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with self, and relationship with creation. Those four have been distorted by the fallenness and sin, the guilt and the shame that accompanies that fallenness. The good news is that it doesn't end there. It's like when Paul talks about these things in Romans 1, 2, and 3. He paints a, a canvas and he puts black paint on it first, describing our sin, the bad part of the, of the good news, the negative part. We have to be honest before the confrontation when we look up with God. And then we look in and we realize it's a black canvas. But on that black canvas, the colors of red and white and yellow and green and fuchsia are going to be beautiful when we paint the good news of what Jesus came to do. So two things. One, God meets Isaiah at the point of his confession. That's why he touches the lips. But he also touches the lips because it's the instrument he will use in his prophet. He is going to be the spokesman and bring the prophetic word in the following chapters. Amen? So two things. He meets us at the point of confession and he meets us with what he is going to become the instrument of salvation. With it, he touched my mouth, his lips, and your guilt, they say your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In the Old Testament, here it happens with a coal, a live coal. Of course, we live on this side of the New Testament and we have the privilege of knowing that the live coal that can touch our lips, our mouth, our heart is the person of Jesus Christ himself who was existing already from the foundations of the earth who created us with a purpose and a plan, who created humanity, but humanity rebelled against Him, against Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we didn't end only in the fall. There comes the whole story that gets into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where we have the story of the gospel where Jesus incarnates Himself, doesn't stay in five-star heaven far away from us, but comes and invades in his own creation and becomes one of us. I once made a huge mistake and I said to a theologian embarrassingly in, 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 in seminary, yeah, 50% God and 50% human. Oh, and I never forget, he said, no, 100% God, 100% human. The mystery of the two natures of Christ. And fully human, fully God, he becomes one of us and like us in every way except does not fall into sin. And Jesus preaches, he teaches, he shows us the way. He does his miraculous works. He teaches us through parables, and then he does the work of the passion where he goes to the cross, something no one else could do. 
He takes the sin of everybody, of the world throughout history, throughout time and geography. He puts it on himself and he dies on the cross and forgives us of our sins. But then resurrects unto new life and invites us into new life. So the work on the cross and the resurrection is not just about forgiving your sins. It certainly is forgiving your sins. We have to start there. But then it also invites you into new life and new mission. And he came to make all things new. The whole book ends with Jesus saying, Behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, I finished making everything new. We would look out the window and go, it doesn't look new to me. He didn't say, hey, just hold on. Someday you'll go to a pretty place called heaven and someday I'll make it all new. No. He says, and in the Greek it's very clear in the grammar there, I am making all things new. It's a present continuous. Continue. My English is terrible sometimes. It's, you know what I mean? It's present, but it's continuing. I am making. I've begun it. It just hasn't ended. I am doing it. And the church gets the privilege of being involved. But we have to first allow the coal of Jesus Christ to touch our hearts and change. We need to repent of our sins. We have to say, God, forgive me. Take away the shame. Take away the guilt. Take away my fears. Take away my anguish. Take away my anger. Take away my resentment. Take away... I'm going to tell you a story. In Multiplication Network in Brazil, just three weeks ago, I met a murderer. I thought I was meeting a pastor. But I met a guy who killed a man. And I'm hearing his testimony, and he's now a church planter. What happened is he killed a man and he ended up in jail. Spent many years in jail, but in jail, someone had the audacity to go in there and preach the gospel and tell him that there was hope for him and that even though he was surrounded by bars and walls and guards, that he could have freedom in Jesus Christ. He accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. His life was transformed. Some years later, they let him out early. But they had to say, at 8 o'clock p.m., you have to be in your house. So he had a house arrest curfew. Had to be home between 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. So the church services of the church he wanted to attend were in the evening, and he couldn't make it back on time, so he couldn't go to that church because it was too far from his house. So the church came to him in his house, and he started testifying to other people, Jesus is alive. Jesus is real. J- Jesus changed my life. I murdered a man. But Jesus now gave me hope. I repented of what I did. It was awful. It's terrible. I lived in a life of this, 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 and this. And, you know, macho, camacho, Latin American style, you know, machismo. But Jesus brought new humility and new courage into this man's life. And people who were scared of this guy in the past, I have a picture of if you want to see him. And he, he, he started talking to people about Jesus. People started coming to Bible study in his home because he couldn't go out in the evenings. And next thing you know, he's got 62 people worshiping God in the front living room of his house. They no longer fit. Standing room only. They stand at the doorpost, at the thresholds, listening to the gospel from a guy who was once a, a, a murderer, now a, a, a person who has confessed and has allowed the... the, the the live coal of Jesus Christ to touch his lips and change his heart. This is happening, and he's now going to be a church planter going through the Multiplication Network modules of a year of training to be able to plant this church in a healthy way that is rooted in the truths of the gospel. Praise the Lord. We want to see thousands of people like him transforming, being transformed, but to be transformed and a blessing to others. This is the power of the gospel. Amen? So, 
Isaiah looks up, he looks in, and now something important happens. Again, we're back to grammar. If you look at the final verse, the final verse, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and you'll notice here a mistake in the grammar. Say, what is this preacher doing? How is he going to say that the Bible has a grammar mistake? But I just want to make a point. If you were in school, you either write in the singular voice or you write in plural voice. You can't mix those in the same sentence. But here, it seems to be a mistake because when God speaks, He says, Whom shall I send? It's in the singular. And then it says, And who will go for us? It's in the plural. What do we have going here? Somebody should, you know, this, the English teacher would give it to you with red marks on it. What's happening here is what the commentators tell us is that God in His divine counsel, speaking as one, God Himself says, Whom shall I send? And then the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speaking as the community that our Godhead is, says, Who will go for us? Speaking to one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in conference saying, Who will go for us? Isaiah hears the question. Brothers and sisters in Christ and friends of the gospel, those who have been transformed, not only do you look up and see an awesome, incredible, forgiving, gracious, graceful, holy, glorious God, you also need to step back and look in and see the reality of your own life for what it is. And once confronted with the gospel, Come to the cleansing power of Jesus Christ and what He did in the cross and in His resurrection for you to invite you to new life, not just to a set of, set of rules and regulations, although it can include some of those for your good. Don't touch that oven or it's going to burn you. Do this, this, and this instead. But the one that calls you to faith, to hope, to love, to bring transformation and joy, not free of headaches, but a, certainly a lot of joy. Look at Paul, the great church planter of all times, he planted so many churches and then he'd go visiting them. We would not have a New Testament if it weren't for church planting. I love it that we're preaching here in the church plant of a church plant. And I love it that your pastor, Pastor Sam, and his team are church planters. Those are, for Multiplication Network, those are our heroes. Church planters are our heroes because they're willing to go and answer this question, here am I. And so that is his answer. You've got to understand that having had the confrontation when he looked up, having had the confession and the cleansing when he looked in, if he considered himself dead meat, once he sees that he's been vivified, that he's been made alive in Christ, right? Because when he says he saw the Lord, if you go to John, I didn't mention this earlier, but if you went to John, sometimes the New Testament gives you interpretive hints about what you're reading in the Old. And in John, it says that Isaiah saw Adonai. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ. Wow, that's a mind-blowing thing. I can't wrap my... My intellect is not enough, I just have to admit it, to wrap my head around that one. To have seen the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's what John tells us. It's amazing. I can't imagine it. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now it's no problem for Isaiah because he was dead meat. But now he's been made alive. So anything is gained. Anything is gain. We're dead men walking. We're dead women walking. We, we, should, we once were dead in our trespasses and our sin, says the great church planter Paul. But now we've been made alive in Christ. Paul plants these churches. These churches are bending the knee and saying, we recognize that the Lord is not the Roman emperor. And that came at a cost. 
Pastor Sam told us about the costliness of discipleship earlier today. This came at a cost. To say that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord could cost you your job. Your kids won't go to the preferred school. They might even behead you. They might throw you to the lions. That was amazing. And yet these whole communities said, Jesus is Lord. God has resurrected him from the dead. Folks, without the resurrection, we don't have a story. There are many, many stories of messiahs that came and went. People who came and were great poets or great philosophers, kind people, teachers, and that when they died, the story was over. And some might say, well, his spirit lives on. This is not that kind of story. This is a story where God, fully God, fully human, is raised up three days after he's in the grave. He is raised up and invites us into new life and life in abundance. This is an amazing part of the gospel story. And so when he calls out, we who were dead are now being made alive in Christ, and we can answer like Isaiah, here am I. Send me. And in the plural, corporately, here we are. Send us. You are not just a church that is saved. You're a church that is sent. Even in your vocation, you are sent into the world. If you work for Microsoft, you are sent into the world. And I want to make a, 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 a careful analysis of this situation. When you do your work, of course, it's so that you can make money to give to the church and to mission. That's great. You've got to do that. Of course, it's so that you can be a testimony to your neighbors and share Jesus when you can. That's great. You have to do that. But even as you do your computing systems, or if you're an accountant, your accounting systems, or if you're a painter or a carpenter or a mechanic, even the job and the vocation itself. I love what Tim Keller says about all this stuff, if you ever get a chance to read it. But your vocation itself is to gather God's praises by doing it as unto the Lord. Your vocation itself brings glory to God. And of course, you give to the church and you participate in mission and you share your faith. It's an all-in perspective. That's the power of the gospel. Be careful with a dichotomized faith where Sundays and Wednesday nights, you're the Christian. But then later, I had some friends, even friends who were in leadership in Puerto Rico who said, Pastor Juan, está bien todo esto de la fe en Cristo, pero business is business. They said it to the, with that anglicism. You know what they were saying? We, we, we love the Lord. We love Jesus and we want to serve him. But you also have to understand business is business. What that meant is sometimes during the week you have to accept under the table a payment or make a payment. And so you, you do the Jesus things in the Jesus place and you remove. You know who loves that? The devil loves that. Satan loves that. That's a dichotomy, dichotomous view where Greek philosophy has come into the evangelical church and we have, we're living in a Gnosticism where we say these things are spiritual and these physical things are evil. That's not right. That goes against the incarnation of Jesus where everything in creation belongs to him and he wants your life from Sunday to Sunday and more importantly what happens during the week in your vocation, in your play, in the boardroom, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, on the football field, in the university campus, on the beach, wherever it might be. Jesus is Lord, and he is making all things new. I want to finish. You know that when a pastor says, I want to finish, the third time is the real time. <laughs> I don't know if that's how Pastor Sam... Oh! <laughs> But to land the plane, I just want to finish with this. We have creation, fall, 
redemption, and new creation. I finish with this. Could you repeat after me? Creation, fall. Redemption, new creation. We have forgotten the bookends of the gospel message in many churches. We live in a world where American evangelicalism gives us the fall redemption, fall redemption, fall redemption. It's part, it's the magnificent middle. Fantastic. But we're forgetting the bookends. Here's what I mean to say in the context of Isaiah 6. The fall, you're a sinner and you need Jesus as Lord and Savior. Redemption, accept Him as Lord and Savior. Your life will change and hold on, you're going to heaven someday. Okay. But that's not the full thing. God created the heavens and the earth. The fall happens. Redemption in Jesus Christ takes place. And then the part that is least taught and preached about is new creation. Isaiah, the same Isaiah. If you move to Isaiah 65, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and a full description, a picture of justice and peace where the lion and the lamb can lay together and, and where no longer will they build houses and others live in them and plant vineyards and others eat their fruit. But they, and then it says it in the positive, they will plant vineyards and enjoy its fruit and they will build houses and live in them. Wow, that picture of justice, peace, justice, and the shalom of righteousness, which kingdom of God picture in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, inviting us into his, the, the, the definition for kingdom of God is the redemptive reign and rule of Jesus. The redemptive reign and rule of Jesus over all creation. So new creation has to do with your name. Your name is Restoration Road. Creation, the bad news of the fall, the beauty of the redemption that happens in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then the invitation to participate in the making all things new. Here I just want to make my final uh, comment. As evangelicals who have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we know that it is of no merits of our own. It is only through the glorious power of a totally holy God that in His mercy He gives us His forgiveness and His invitation to new life. We repent of our sins and we come to Him. And now we're invited into His big, magnificent project of participating with the creation of all things, in, of the redemption and re restoration of all things, not to earn something, but out of gratitude for what He has already done. We love Him because He loved us first. Primary agency is God. Secondary agency is our response to Him. Amen? This is just solid biblical teaching that is accepted from Presbyterians to Pentecostals. If you're an evangelical Christian, this is part of our faith. But what is often forgotten is this part that happened here of forgetting about the universality of the gospel. The whole earth will be full of His glory. May the Lord bring transformation to your life. If you had a particular need as you heard the gospel this morning, may the Lord work through His Holy Spirit to bring the ointment that is necessary in your heart. Or if it was a word of exhortation that you heard, that it might bring you to change, like we heard about the lighthouse at the beginning. May God help you in those minor adjustments, but also in the 180 changes that need to happen. And if there's someone here that hasn't accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, today could be your day of salvation. Please talk to Pastor Sam or one of the elders after church 
and say, I'd like to know more about the Christian faith and about this Jesus that says he can change all things and make me new. You can be a new creation. For those of you who have been serving Christ for a long time here at Restoration Road Church, participate not only in your local church, but see how you can also get involved studying, praying, giving for the global cause of planting churches, communities of the kingdom of God. And that's one way where you can say, here am I, send me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we all say, amen. Let's pray.